Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Dear Christian friends, Happy New Year. Oh, come on. Happy New Year. Thank you. We're kicking off a new year, and with a new year often comes some thinking about our lives, right? Some thinking about the past year and, and thinking about the coming year, some, some changes that we want to make, some things that we want to accomplish, which is where the idea of a New Year's resolution comes from, right? Because a resolution isn't all by itself like a bad thing. Essentially, a resolution, a New Year's resolution, is a goal that you set for yourself. It's something that you want to see yourself reach, a goal you want to see yourself reach in a year. So let's be honest, raise your hand. How many of you made a resolution, set yourself a goal for 2020? Okay, not many. Now, how many of you thought about making yourself a resolution for 2020? A lot more. The funny thing is, we think about this, right? But not many of us do it. If you, if you, you know, think about different resolutions, there's a lot of pretty common ones, pretty popular ones. The, the list from last year compiled, right? The top 10 resolutions from 2019. That number 10 is spend more time with family, friends. Number nine, drink less alcohol. Number eight, find another job. Number seven, read more. Number six, quit smoking. Number five, learn a, a new skill or hobby. Number four, save more and spend less. Number three, lose weight. Number two, exercise more. Number one, eat healthier. I'm seeing a common theme among those top ones, right? So maybe you have a resolution that looks like one of those, or actually probably more likely as you thought about a resolution that looks like one of those, right? The funny thing is that you're probably familiar and probably part of the reason that so many of us thought about making a resolution but didn't actually make one is because 92% of resolutions fail before the year is out. That's a, a, a shocking number, right? 92%, only 8% actually achieve, accomplish the goal at the end of the year. In fact, there's a, a social network for athletes that, that tracked data from more than 32 million athletes. And they pinpointed the day when the majority of people fail at their resolutions. You know when that was? January, that tells you something, right? 12th. So you have one week that you got to stick with it. If you do a week and a day, you've beat the majority, right? And there's a reason why so many people fail to stick to a goal, to reach the goal, to stick with it. And, and that's because social scientists have, have discovered through studies that 50% of people that, that have a goal, that plan a resolution, they don't have a plan. They want, they want to reach an end point. They want to hit this goal, but they have no plan in place of how to actually get there. They they just want the goal to happen, right? They just want it to fall in their laps. They want to keep eating and drinking the same things and still lose weight. 
They want to, to not change their spending habits but have their bank accounts miraculously go up. They want the job to fall in their laps, the, the vacation to just plan itself and get emailed to their inbox. And that makes it not really a goal but a wish. Which is why we're starting a series about habits. Because habits are the things that you do to reach a goal. They're the day-to-day, week-to-week pieces that you put in place to accomplish the goal that you want to reach. You know this, right? If your goal is to avoid hearing the at the dentist's office, well, you need to brush your teeth and floss them regularly. But if you wait until like the last two days before you go visit the dentist and don't brush up until then, you're probably going to hear a lot of that drill. Which is why we practice the habit of regularly brushing, regularly flossing, right? But if you're anything like me, it's kind of hard to do that. Maybe not with brushing, but it's hard to do that with habits because you don't see the goal. You don't see the end result right away. There's such small steps that it feels like you're not making any progress, any headway, and accomplishing anything. But if you take them all together and you compound them, you can actually achieve really big things and produce really big results, which is why we're starting this series here. Because it's not a self-help series. No, it's a series that's built upon a goal. A goal that that we all have, a goal that every Christian has, because it's a really big goal. It's an eternal one. And that's important because, again, social scientists have found that when you have a goal that's attached to some kind of bigger picture, some kind of bigger reason, you're much, much more likely to achieve that goal, to reach that goal. We know this, right? If, if somebody is trying to quit smoking and they just say, I'm, I'm going to quit smoking, and it's a habit that they've had for decades, well, their likelihood is, is not great. But if they're diagnosed with COPD and their doctor says, you need to stop or you're not going to be able to breathe in a year or two, well, now there's a bigger picture, a bigger why, a bigger reason behind it, right? If you decide, I want to I start running this year, well, it's really hard to, to get up out of the couch, out of the chair, and get outside and pound some pavement when ah, the motivation isn't real high. But if you sign yourself up for a half marathon in six months and you paid money to do that and you told people, I'm going to do that, now you have a, a bigger picture, a bigger reason why to get you to practicing and putting into place those day-to-day habits so that you hit that goal. And that brings us to us, right? What's your bigger picture? What's your why? What's the story that you want your life to tell? If I ran into one of your coworkers and I just said, oh, hey, you work with so-and-so. What do you know about them? Well, what would you want them to say? 
You'd want them to talk about your character, your personality, your, right, you're this warm person, you're funny, you're caring, you're hardworking, da-da-da-da-da. We'd want them to say good things. The problem is that sometimes the things that we want, the things that we say, this is what I want people to know about me, these are the things that I ultimately value. Well, they run in conflict with things that my heart wants. Which actually brings us to our first takeaway this morning. If you want to fill in the blanks, it's that some of the things that I naturally want, they're in conflict with the things that I ultimately value. The things that I say are important to me aren't always the things that I put into practice in my daily life to show that, are they? For instance, if, if we asked a, somebody who knows you well and they said, well, yeah, I mean, oh, man, just really hard to work with that guy, but, but he always drives a nice car. Well, a nice car is something that we naturally want, isn't it, right? Nice wheels, good truck, big truck, but really tough to work with. Or... Or, yeah, oh, she's, man, you should see, that lady is always fashionably dressed. She always knows exactly what to wear for the occasion. I've never actually seen her with her family, but she always knows how to look good. The thing that we naturally want, approval of others looking good, all those kinds of things, can be in conflict with what we ultimately value. And this is important, this is beneficial, whether you're, you're a Christian or not, But here's where it really ties in for Christians. Because the biggest question of all is not what story do I want to tell, which is our our second takeaway this morning. What story do I want my life to tell when people think of me, see me, talk about me? It's not what I think people see. It's what do they actually see? What priorities, what character do they see? But the really big question actually as a Christian is, What does God want for my life? And if you think about that first takeaway, the natural wants and the ultimate values, the ultimate values are the things that God says are important, right? But the natural wants sometimes get in the way. And that's where we can see a conflict between those two things. What I want my life to show and what God wants my life to be, sometimes they butt heads. But what God wants us to understand is really, as a Christian, those two things, the answer is inseparably linked. Because as a Christian, ultimately, the story I want my life to tell is what God wants for me. What does God want my character to be? What does God want my priorities to be? What does God want my my goals to be? Where does he want me aiming, pointing with my life? How does he want me living? What does it look like in the world around me? And so this morning, I want to help you take a step back and and see the bigger picture for a moment and think about putting into place some godly habits as we see what God says about them. Now to do that, we're going to look at a book of the Bible called Galatians. It was written by a first century church planter 
by the guidance and direction of God. His name was Paul. And Paul actually wrote these are letters that were written to Christian churches, congregations throughout the Mediterranean world, and he wrote more than a dozen of them. And all of them were written to help this group when they were going through some kind of spiritual struggle. And Galatians is no different. In fact, it was written to a group of Christians in Galatia who were struggling with perhaps the greatest spiritual struggle that there really is. There was a a lie, a false teaching that was circulating throughout their community, throughout even their church, and some people were, were believing it. And it was this, that a lot of these Christians knew the Old Testament Bible, the Old Testament law as well. That, that you were supposed to worship in this way on this day, that you were not supposed to walk so many steps on the Sabbath, that you couldn't eat pork, you should be circumcised, right down the line. And the lie, the false teaching that was going around was that, well, good, I'm glad you know those things because if you want to be part of God's group, if you want God to love you, you have to do those things first. And that was a problem, obviously. And that's why throughout the letter to Galatians, the theme that Paul comes back to continually over and over again is, well, the theme we just sang about, if the Son sets you free. The theme of freedom, that Jesus came to give us freedom. Freedom from thinking that I have to do something to be in a part of God's house. That, that m- what I do determines whether God loves me or not. And in the middle of all of this talk about freedom and about God has done it all, comes a verse that's, that's almost right dab smack in the middle of the book of Galatians. And it's kind of a, a nice little summary. It comes right at the end of chapter 3, and it says this. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. Through faith. Through faith, right? Not through what you've done, and that's an important concept. Because when you became a part of a family, what did you do? You didn't do anything. Whether you were born into the family or adopted into the family, you didn't actually do anything. You were completely passive. It happened to you and for you. And the same is true when it comes to God's family. You didn't do anything. Christ Jesus, he did it all. He's the one who lived for you. He's the one who died for you and rose again to prove that he had paid for all of your sins, that you, all the mistakes, all the failures, everything is wiped clean from your record. And that when God looks at you, he sees perfection and holiness because of Jesus. See, what that means is that we get to pray to God. We get to live for God now, not trying to, not trying because we're, we're afraid of this like all-powerful supreme entity or trying to appease some kind of angry judge, but because we know that God is my heavenly Father who loves me dearly. That he cares about you and me more than, more than you could ever imagine. And that he has an inheritance for you that's better than 
anything anyone could ever possibly give you. And that's why it's so important to understand what Paul is saying here. He wanted the Galatians to to put this in their minds, and he wants you and me to imprint it on our hearts. It's our next takeaway. That at the heart of my story, at what I want people to know about me, at who I really am, is my identity. And your identity is what God says it is, that I'm a child of God. My core identity, it's not parent, it's not coach, it's not spouse, it's not employee, it's not student, it's not any of those other things. My core identity, your core identity, is what God says it is. His child. And when you remember that, when that's what you live every day, not I'm living my, my role as husband, I'm living my role as wife, I'm living my role as employee, I'm doing this job. But when this is where you wake up and where you go to sleep every day, well, it changes why and how you live your life. There's a danger in this, though. It's a danger that, that Paul understood and that he writes about at the end of this book. And, and it's kind of hard for us to really wrap our heads around at first because we treasure so beautifully this amazing gift that we are saved apart from anything we do. And absolutely, that is the right thing. And we hold on to that and we say, this is good because there's nothing I could do to earn God's favor. Salvation is a gift Did you know there's a danger to that? I guarantee your heart knows it. Because every Christian heart does. And the danger is, if salvation is completely a gift, it's apart from anything that I do, then I don't have to do anything. See, our, our twisted hearts want to take this gift from God and mangle it all up and abuse it And turn it into permission. Permission to do just whatever I want to do because God doesn't care. I'm saved by grace. Salvation is a gift. Why does it matter? And that's why Paul, at the end of this letter that's all about freedom and all about God's gift to you and to me and to all people, that we are forgiven in Jesus apart from what we do, he ends with the words we're going to look at this morning. A warning, a reminder, and an encouragement. He begins, Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Do not be deceived, because God cannot be mocked. Do not be deceived. Well, that's something we have a tendency to do, actually. right? And not just by the deceiver, the devil, but even by our own sinful hearts that want to deceive us. And the deception is to mock God. Wait a minute. I would never do that. The the Greek word for mock here, the original Greek word, it has to do with looking down your nose at someone. Sticking your chin up in the air, the haughty attitude. And and it's a disrespect. It's a, a belittling. It's a thinking less of someone or something. 
Which brings us to the question, then, how were the Galatians doing this? And do we do that? How do I do that? Why would I, why would I think less or disrespect God? I don't do that, do I? Which brings us to the second part of the verse. A man reaps what he sows. Every single person, they reap what they sow. Here's what Paul is saying. What we think and what we, we, when, when we think, what we say and what we do doesn't make a difference. We make a mockery of God. We point and laugh at his laws and his commands and his guidance and his wisdom and his direction. We think that we can pull the wool over on God and we can sneak one past him. And if he knows, well, what's he going to do anyway? Which there may be no greater disrespect to the all-knowing God than thinking that we can get away with something that he wouldn't know about. It is absolutely a disrespect, a belittling, a demeaning, a bringing God low by thinking we can just do whatever we want. And, and that happens when we think, maybe even when we say, it's okay. God will forgive me. When we go into headlong a sin that we know is wrong, we, we see the stop sign, we hear the warning from the Spirit in our hearts and in our minds, and we say, it's okay. God will forgive me. Because what that is, Paul says, is not only sin, you are actually mocking God. You're saying, I know what you say, <laughs> but I'm going to do it my way anyway. And that's why Paul points out this is dangerous, friends, and you reap what you sow. Now, I've heard some Christian preachers and read some theologians that, that want to take that last phrase, that last sentence, and they want to make it into an absolute, to make it into a rule or a law that, that what you reap is what you always, is always the result of what you sow. So, what that means is that if you show kindness, you will always reap kindness. If you sow, give away generosity, if you, you will always reap generosity. And all, often where this leads is if you are generous to God, God will be generous to you. But this isn't necessarily intended to be a, an always applicable hard and fast rule because you know this. You ever been to kind to someone that, whew, they were not kind in return. You ever been generous to someone that, that wasn't even appreciative, much less generous in return? Instead, they just wanted to take and take and take and take and take. We know that that's not like an absolute rule. It's not intended to be that way. Really, what it is intended to be is a warning, a reminder not to let that become your motivation, that you do this for someone so that they do it for you. And to remember something that I'm pretty sure your parents taught you. And if they didn't, your physics teacher did. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Maybe not exactly in the, the physics realm, but hopefully your parents taught you that actions have consequences. For example, if you, put, if you spend 18 years putting, putting work first and family second... 
well, you're probably going to have a really good job. You're probably not going to have a great family life because actions have consequences. If you eat more calories than you burn, well, actions have consequences. You're going to love food, but you're probably going to gain weight because actions have consequences. That's how it works. It isn't always an exact this for that relationship, right? If you give kindness that you'll get kindness in return, but there is a result, positive or negative, good or bad, there is a consequence down the road for the action of the moment. And sometimes those consequences come back right here, right now, almost immediately, but sometimes not so much. And that's part of the bigger picture that's important for us to remember. Because there's a reason that this is in the Bible and not a self-help manual. And we find it in verse 8. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Now that word flesh isn't talking about your physical body. It's talking about that part of you and me and every other human being that's broken. That, that sinful part of us that, that's always striving for something besides what God wants. That, that's desiring the cravings of our sinful nature, that the lusts, the things that I want that God says, that's not good for you. And we say, I don't care, I want that. That's what he's talking about here, the, the prioritization of self and world above God. It's sin. And he says, when you please, when you put things into practice in your life to please your sinful flesh, your desires, your cravings that are in opposition to God, you will reap destruction. So what does that mean? Well, think about it like this. God gives us a, an immense amount of wisdom in his word, right? This tremendous amount of, of direction and guidance, and we kind of often boil it down real simply to Ten Commandments. And that's a good thing because God actually intended his Ten Commandments not to be a you don't get to, but as a blessing. And that when you live and listen to his Ten Commandments, when you think God says, do not do this, I'm not going to do that. God, God says that's going to be a blessing in your life. The, the consequences of those actions will be good. And if you don't, if you continually ignore God and please yourself, your sinful desires, well, that's going to bring about some painful consequences, some difficulties here in this life. And if you continually ignore God, ignore God, ignore God, ignore God, live for myself, live for myself, live for myself, well, there's an even greater danger, isn't there? That that destruction, that it's an ultimate and eternal one, that it ultimately can lead to falling away from faith and losing faith completely. The flip side of this, though, is that when we follow God's direction, not perfectly, we don't, we can't, and that's why we have salvation as a gift, that forgiveness is something Jesus has done for us, that when we do that, God says, you will reap 
life, eternal life, not, not as the result of what you've done, but as the natural harvest that flows from a life lived because of what God has done. That our lives have a bigger picture. And I think that's something that we maybe struggle to remember and is important. That when we have actions, they don't just have physical consequences, but they have spiritual ones too. Which is why, well, let me give you an example first. We're going to dig into this more next week, but if you, if we don't ever spend time talking to God in prayer, we don't ever spend time listening to him speak to us in his word, we just dip our toe into the water here and there, we may not completely lose our faith, but we're sure not going to have a whole lot of trust, are we? And when, then when you hear the bad news on TV, oh, what's going to happen? I don't even know who's in control anymore. When the storms of life come along, the worry and the fear set in and we're in even greater danger because we haven't listened to the one who has made us to listen. Which brings us to our next takeaway. Number four is that I need to choose what I do with God in view. So as we think about habits over the coming weeks, month, this month, we want to think about what is that going to look like? Not just what is that going to mean for my day-to-day life, but what is that going to mean for my spiritual life? What does this look like for my relationship with God? As I I put this into practice and I work to, to plant this in my life, what does that look like? Because your life is bigger than your life. Your life is bigger than your life. And that means that our stories, our bigger picture should reflect that, right? Which brings us to verse 9. Paul says, So, with all of this in mind, let us not become weary in doing good. Paul says this because guess what? It's really easy to get weary of doing the good things, right? I forgive, and I forgive, and I forgive. I'm kind, I'm generous, I'm gentle, I'm humble. And it just seems like people keep taking and taking and taking and spitting in my face, and it's not getting me anywhere. It's real easy to get fed up and, and burned out and tired of doing the things that God says are good. Which is why Jesus says, this isn't gonna be easy. He tells us that up front. He says, don't don't take up this light little feather and carry it around in life. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. That the the path is narrow, the the gate is narrow. The Bible says, fight the good fight, right? This is a struggle, a challenge every minute of every day to do the things that God says are good. It isn't easy. God never said it would be. In fact, he said it would be hard. But, but, when you remember first and foremost who you are, you are a child of God, that God loves you, that Jesus died for you, saved you, made you his own, and that he lives in you to strengthen you and equip you to live for him. Well, that means 
that means that you are able to do the things that God says. Not easy, but you're able. And here's where that's important, the rest of verse 9. So let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we don't give up. Realize that at the proper time, maybe it's next week, maybe it's sometime later in this life, maybe it's not until heaven, you will reap a harvest. There will be a harvest as a result of living this way for God and for his glory. Now that doesn't mean that when you get to heaven, you're going to have a more perfect heaven than some other people who don't. Because there is no such thing as a more perfect heaven. Heaven is going to be amazing and glorious and perfect for everyone. But think of it like this. What if it means that there are an extra two or three or eight or twelve souls with you in heaven? Because through your kindness, through your humility, through your love, they wanted to know what makes you tick. How do you just keep rolling with the punches? How do you have peace? How do you how do you keep forgiving people and loving people? Because that is not, not what is natural. And then you get to show them it's because I'm, I'm a child of God because my God saved me. And he saved you too. It isn't only an eternal harvest though. There are things here in life that are the results. So, I want you to think about this seed. Watermelon seed, tiny. Usually we don't even think about it. We just spit it out of our mouths, right? You put this seed in the ground, and it has the potential to grow. We kind of live in a, it's nice for people most of the time, but plants-wise, this isn't the greatest climate though, right? It's probably going to require a little bit of love. Because if you just put this in the ground all by itself, the chances are, there's a chance that it will be like the perfect conditions, it'll work out. But chances are, it's going to need you to put into practice some habits. You're going to need to put a little water on it every day. You're going to need to go and and pull the weeds so that they don't suck up all the nutrients out of the soil and, and choke this seed out. But if you do those little things, not like monumental tasks, if you do those little things day after day after day after day, this thing turns into this thing. From this tiny seed comes this big harvest. From this little seed with little little pieces, little habits, Day after day after day, over time, comes this great big result. Or, in case you're not a farmer, you're more of a money person, well, think about the way that we usually talk about compound effects, right? We talk about it in terms of investing. And if you invest $100 when you're 18 years old, that's a lot of money. 100 bucks a month, that's a lot. By the time you're 35 or 48 or 52, it's probably not as much of a, a, hopefully not as much of a percentage of your monthly income, right? So imagine that you invest 100 bucks a month for 50 years, 50, or 18 to 68, and you want to retire. How much have you put in the bank? You've invested $60,000, no small change, right? 
but you know how compound interest works. And so imagine that if the, the markets continue as they have historically and they average somewhere in the 8 to 10% range, you don't end up with $60,000, this nice green line. No, you end up with more like $1.4 million, that red line. It's a sowing that reaps a harvest. Which brings us to our last takeaway this morning. That even small habits make a big difference over time. See, what we're going to be talking about the rest of this series, they are not huge monumental things, challenges, tasks. And that's not because I don't think you can do some big things. It's because you don't really need to. If you just put into to place some small steps, one foot in front of the other, day after day after day, over time, those lead to big changes. And when you do that in ways that God says are good and pleasing to him, it results in a beautiful thing. This great harvest in your life and for eternity because we have this bigger picture that we're not just playing for this day or this week or this year, that we're in this looking ahead to an eternity with our God who loves us and saved us and will take us to be with him. And that's why we put into practice what God says. Amen.